0: You can have your Bibles handy. We're going to be beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 this morning. Title of the sermon, The Conscience. Uh, We have been out of Genesis for a little while now. Um, If you do not have a Bible and you'd like one, there are some in the window wells there. Uh, The the text will be up on the screen as well, so you can follow along on screen if you would like. Um, We took several weeks off. We had a church picnic, and then I was out of town. And then last week we were uh, talking about the nature of our liberty In Christ and and what the concept of liberty uh, calls us unto. So it's been a little while, and we are just wrapping up this week, uh, Genesis chapter 3. I regret that I didn't get to get this message in before the break. We could have just jumped right into Genesis 4 and kind of stayed in that headspace for the rest of Genesis 3. So I regret that we were not able to do that. However, I hope that we can get back into that headspace fairly quickly. And in doing, in in a desire to do so, um, let's take a look at a few verses in Genesis 3 just to catch ourselves back up to speed. Recall that in chapter 3 we have the fall of man to sin. Uh, Adam eats of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and when he does so the eyes of he and his wife are open and they, they understand good and evil and we've talked through the various elements of this as it relates to choices, as it relates to consequences. Uh, last time we were together we talked about the glimmers of grace, right? That, that glimmer of grace that we see in the reality that following this great uh, sin and then the curse that God levies upon uh, the serpent, and then the woman, and then the man. We see this idea that God then clothes them, and He clothes them as an extension of His grace, as He clothes them to cover their, the shame of their nakedness, and in doing so, extends that first, that first olive branch, as it were, of grace to man and woman—a sign of great things that are to come, a promise that was given in verse fifteen. And that's where we're going to, we'll begin in verse 14, in fact. And I'm I'm going to read through the end of the chapter in verse 24. Again, we'll be kind of looking at verse 21 as the begin, as, as the focus of our time today. Verse 14, the Bible says this, the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed. Above all cattle and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go. And dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, that would be the seed of the woman. And thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the first promise of the, of the Messiah that would come. Verse 16. Under the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, "'Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living." And to Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. There's that grace. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden, cherubims, and a flaming sword, which turned every way. To keep the way of the tree of life. So we've talked through all of those things already. I'm not going to rehash that which we have considered already in them. But we are going to look at this, uh, at chapter 3, verse 21 again, as we consider this concept of the conscience. The first chapters of the book of Genesis are tremendously significant. In them, we have considered the origin of life, the origin of humanity, the essence of humanity's distinction and dignity above and among the other life forms in creation. We've considered man's created purpose. We've considered woman's created purpose. We've considered Satan, his existence, his purpose, his strategies. And finally, through the rebellion of Adam, why it is that our world is in the mess that we currently find it in. And all of these lessons have been taught in just these first three chapters of Genesis. And today, our final sermon here in Genesis chapter 3 We have one more lesson that I'd like us to consider before moving into Genesis 4, where we begin to consider uh, the first offspring, the first uh, offspring of man and woman, Cain and Abel, and the events surrounding their lives. So here we see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, unto Adam also, and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. God would cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, lest they ate of the tree of life, but Even before they were removed from the garden, God took the step of providing for them clothing to cover their nakedness. And we talked about that from the perspective of the consequences of sin, and we also talked about that from the perspective of God and his grace. This would be the first of an untold number of animals whose blood would be shed as a covering of sorts for the sins of man. Because from the very beginning, that which Paul teaches in Hebrews 9, verse 22 has been true. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But there is something else worthy of note here. And that is the theme that we have traced regarding the fall of man for some weeks now. The theme of man's nakedness and the concept of man's nakedness. Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 told us, this is the very last verse of Genesis chapter 2 that following the creation of woman for man, that the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. And we mentioned that this was the case for two reasons. The first of those reasons is a concept that we find in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The Bible tells us there that the mar- that marriage is honorable in all things and the bed undefiled, so that there was quite literally no shame in their context, in their condition, a- a- in-, in, this- in this way. But there's a second idea here. And that's the idea that I want us to think a little bit more about, that as the scriptures trace this theme, that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, man and woman were there in the garden, and, and God had united them together, and they were naked and not ashamed, and yet the minute, the moment that Adam took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he ate it, they recognized that they were naked, and they were ashamed, and then God clothed them, covering their nakedness, and thus covering their shame, And this was a concept that we talked about when we were in Genesis chapter 2 from Titus chapter 1 verse 15. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. Unto the pure all things are pure, the scriptures tell us. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Adam and Eve were clothed initially, not just in innocence, but in spiritual virtue. There in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25 and absent the death of sin they were able to live in this state of purity but when adam ate of that fruit everything changed genesis chapter 3 verse 7 tells us that the moment that adam and eve ate of that fruit they died spiritually separated from God. We spent a just talking about that. Did they keel over dead? No. Did the, life that, did the breath that was in them cease? To, did they cease functioning physically, biologically? No. But they were in that moment separated from God, and that's what death is in the Bible. That's how the Bible defines death. Death is separation. When we think of physical, biological death, it's the separation of the immaterial part of us, our spirit, from the material part of us, our body. When we think of death in the spiritual sense, it is the separation of our spirits from the life of God. So, that when the Bible says that we are all sinners and we are all dead in our trespasses and sins, the idea there is that we are separated from God because we are sinful. We are dead. We are living in death. Dead men walking. So, they were spiritually, Adam and Eve were spiritually separated from God in that moment. The context of innocence and of virtue in which they operated was undone. They stepped out of that innocence, they stepped out of that virtue, and they stepped into a different context for living. And the first indication of this change of state, the first indication of the death into which they had fallen, was that they knew they were naked, and they were ashamed of their nakedness, and they covered their nakedness with fig leaves. And that takes us back to our context today. God confronts man, God confronts woman, God confronts serpent, each one is cursed in turn. And now the beginning of the rest of their lives commences. And it commences in this new context. And the first thing that God did, as we said, was cover them. His grace did not usher them back into the innocence that they once had. God extended to them grace. That grace did not usher them back into innocence. That was lost. But much to the contrary, the shame of one's nakedness would bake itself into the human heart and become the most basic and fundamental expression of man's awareness of his own sin and his own shame. And that's what I want to talk about with you today. This is a topic which is very relevant and increasingly so in our time. More so, perhaps, than it has been in the last 50 years of this country, since the sexual revolution of the 60s, the time where we are seeing manifestations of shame and the rejection of manifestations of shame in our culture. And I hope that our time together can connect some important dots in the minds of God's people regarding this most basic manifestation of a man's conscience. And that is where we're actually going to spend most of our time today, talking about the concept of the conscience. We are introduced to that here. As I told you many times, if you think about Genesis from the... If, if you were to set aside all of the other things from all of the time that you spent in church and all of the reading that you've done in your Bible, and you were to read Genesis and, and assume or, or, or think about it as if you had never read anything else before and see the themes that are being introduced. We talked in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3 about how these verses, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was out without form and void. Even in that very first verse, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. We see the beginning. We see the advent of time, space, and matter. And as time, space, and matter begin, we recognize that God, because he created time, space, and matter, exists outside of time, space, and matter. And if God exists outside of time, space, and matter, that tells us some things about God, right? In that God is outside of time, that means that he is omniscient, all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He is in all places at once. Because he created time, which means he's not bound by time. He's outside of time. In that God created matter, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. If he created matter, if he stands outside of matter, then matter has no capacity to exert its force on him. Therefore, God is all-powerful. In that God created space, he is omnipresent. He is everywhere at one time. Why? Because he created space, which means he's outside of space, which means space has no boundaries that, that bound him, which means he is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. We can find all of that out from Genesis 1.1. And so as we walk through, we're actually seeing the first introduction to spiritual concepts. And here we find in this idea that Adam and Eve hid themselves because they knew they were naked. We find the first teaching in the Bible about this concept of the conscience. The idea of a conscience is that of an internal judgment of right and wrong. And perhaps the, the best biblical description of the conscience is found in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, where the Bible says this, beginning in verse 14, "...for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing, or else excusing one another." in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So Paul describes a conscience, the concept of a conscience here, as the law of God written on our hearts. Something which is baked into mankind universally that causes us to be conscious of an accountability that rests upon us, but that is above us and outside of us. It is an accountability that is not just on us because of society, not just on us because of culture, not just on us because of parents, not just on us because of the society in which we, we live in or, or, or the, the sub-societies of, uh, of us. But rather, this is something which transcends all of those things and rests upon us uh, by nature a universal knowledge of a subset of moral truths and realities that transcend time, transcend culture, transcend education, and rest deep in the heart of man, written on man's heart. But this is perhaps a bit deceiving to think of it just this way. Because the Bible tells us that the conscience, while it exists in every man, does in fact rely upon external stimuli to awaken it. We might liken the conscience to photoluminescent watch hands. I don't know what your watch looks like. If you have one on, not too many people wear a watch anymore. I feel naked if I don't have one. My watch has phosphorescent hands on it. There's this little white paint that's on these hands. And as I'm standing here, that white paint is absorbing the light that is coming down and that is shining upon this watch. And if you've ever had one of these phosphorescent watches, you know that after the watch is exposed to light, certain parts of that watch, which usually have a whitish or a greenish appearance to them, will glow for a period of time after exposure to light. So if I were to walk into a dark room and I were to look at my watch, the, the, the hands would glow slightly green. We call that phosphorescence or photoluminescence, depending on who you talk to. Now, when you have one of these watches... The phosphor, which is put into the hands from its manufacturing, giving that watch the potential to glow in the dark, it's there. That phosphor is on this watch. It's not coming off of this watch. It's baked into the watch. But the capacity to glow is not activated until it's exposed to light. And once it's exposed to light, the electrons that are in the paint absorb the photons in the light that are brought, and, and, and it brings those electrons into a high-energy state. The electron then, as it slowly relaxes back into its default state, emits those photons back out, which we perceive as visible light. And once that electron works back down to its, its state at rest... It's no longer emitting any more photons, and there is no more light that is emitted, though, in fact, and in very deed, the, pho- the phosphorescent paint is still there. That's kind of like the conscience. As we would describe it then, the paint on which uh, the watch, uh, the paint that is on the watch, excuse me, as we would describe it, absorbs the light and then emits that light for a measure of time afterwards until all that absorbed light is dissipated, right? That's the layman's terms for it. It's a really good way to think of the conscience. From the moment that Adam ate of the tree of the garden, in the garden, man was endowed with this knowledge of good and evil, our conscience. And it resides in every man, and it has a baseline in every man, but its operation varies dramatically based upon the amount of stimulus that the conscience receives, the amount of light that it receives. Some of this stimulus is universal. Every man is exposed to it, and so every man's conscience is enlivened to certain basic realities. Paul teaches of this universal stimulus, what we often call general revelation in Romans chapter 1. You're here in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 1, the Bible says this, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. That word hold there means to suppress, to hold down. They suppress the truth. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So Romans 1 tells us that creation itself enlivens the conscience to the knowledge both of the existence of God and also to the judgments of God, of God's eternal power and Godhead, or God's eternal power and authority over them. So creation itself tells us there is a God, This God not only exists, but that this God is outside of creation. And if this God is outside of creation, then this God stands above creation. And as the one who created this, he has authority over it, which means I'm in his playground. Which means he gets to set the rules. And that's what creation tells us. Creation tells us that we are in God's world. And we have to play by God's rules. And if we don't, that there will be consequences for it. And these are the things that are universally known to the conscience of man. Apart from any special revelation of God regarding the nature of God's creative work. Reality testifies to these things. Reality testifies to the importance of life. So that regardless of whether or not you grew up in church or lived in the jungle, you know that murder is wrong. Reality testifies to the importance of truth. Truth. That if we don't live in a place, in a context of truth, then we're not living in the context of reality. And if we, if we don't live in the context of reality, then things don't work properly. So because of that, regardless of whether or not you grew up in church or lived in the jungles, you know that lying is wrong. You know that intrinsically. Because reality, creation, life itself testifies to life. Life itself testifies to truth. And, of course, the list could go on. These elements of a man's conscience are considered universal because the general revelation of creation and of life and of reality testifies to their existence. And whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, whether we're willing to acknowledge it or not, our conscience absorbs these truths from simple existence and our conscience is then enlivened as we interact with these truths. And that helps us understand that we are accountable. So we all have a knowledge of these very basic elements of God's judgment and God's authority. But then we add to that, that's what we call general revelation. Romans 1 tells us of general revelation. Then we add to that a second area of revelation that we call special revelation. And typically uh, we, we commit The word of God to that category of special revelation that God then has gone out of his way to make more known to us that we are then accountable for. The specific revelation of God to man. And these are instructions and insights that are not able to be gleaned necessarily just from nature themselves, but instead God handed down to man. And when their light is shined in my life, it makes my conscience glow all the more. My conscience testifies to the truths and the realities of their claims. And typically speaking, in the unbeliever or in the sense of a man who is just coming into uh, contact with special revelation as well as general revelation, the way that our conscience interacts with these truths is guilt and shame. Emotions which are extremely difficult for a a man to bear. As a matter of fact... As you look out at the world around us, many people, anecdotally, I would say most people, but maybe that's just me. I can't, I can't that's just me. That's not, that's not the Bible, right? Many people structure their entire lives around either trying to avoid guilt and shame or trying to cope with guilt and shame. It is the very essence of how many people structure their very lives, It's hard to express just how deep guilt and shame run and how much they factor into the lives of many people, how much it factors into their motivations, why they do what they do, why they're going in the direction they're going in, why they act the way they act, why they don't act the way they don't act. And all of this roots itself in our conscience. It's hard to express how many people spend their lives deadening their conscience, doing everything that they can to avoid, to ignore, to overcome the guilt and the shame that they feel in their conscience, is baked into us. And Paul describes this idea in his own experience in Romans chapter 7. This, the, his interaction with special revelation, he describes in Romans chapter 7. Beginning in verse 7, Paul writes this. What should we say then? Is the law sin? And when he speaks of the law here is speaking of the Old Testament law, that which um, he speaks of quite a bit in, in the book of Romans as it relates to man's relationship to the law. This would be the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that came from that. Paul, of course, being from a Jewish background and having uh, lived in that culture of Judaism, along with many unto whom he was writing. So he asks this question, is the law sin? God forbid, he says. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Notice what he's saying here. Outside of the law, before the law shined into his heart, it's not that sin did not exist, but it was not enlivened in his conscience. He was not aware of the depth of the depravity, of the shame, of the guilt into which he was actually operating until the light shined in and he said, wow, I'm in darkness. It's like if I were walking around, uh, my, my, um, my, my children got some ice cream yesterday and uh, my youngest son in particular, uh, we, we, we had, we had um, five uh, ice cream sandwiches and then we had one chocolate drumstick left. And um, my son, as we were going to the freezer, he said, can I have a drumstick? I said, I don't think we have any more left. And it turned out that we had one left. was chocolate ice cream with the chocolate on top and the toffee and whatnot. So, um... So he got the drumstick, and we went out to cut their hair afterwards. They're uh, nicely shorn today, and um, his face was just chocolate all over. So after his haircut, naturally, his face was chocolate and hair all over. Uh, He he had a nice beard, much nicer than mine. Um, And so my son just had chocolate all over his face. Now, here's the thing. My son had chocolate all over his face, but he did not necessarily know he had chocolate all over his face because he had not looked in a mirror yet, right? And before you look in a mirror, you may touch your face and say, oh, I've got, I've got a little something on my face there. And you, you, you may know that you have a little something on your face, but then you go and you stand before a mirror and you say, oh, I have something on my face, right? When you, are, when, when, when you flick a light on and you look at yourself in a mirror, when you are illuminated to your condition, it, it, it brings a whole new level of awareness, right, as to who you are and where you stand. I might not know that I have a problem until I flick a light on in the morning and uh, not my hair is going everywhere because that doesn't happen anymore, but, but your hair is going everywhere or, or uh, you've got something stuck in your teeth or whatever it might be and you are dealing with this and now because you have seen it, you're aware of it and now you, you act accordingly, right? You clean up your face, you brush your hair, you, you, take, get, you brush your teeth, whatever it might be to deal with the problem at hand. So Paul says that without the law, sin was dead. That doesn't mean that sin wasn't sin. All that means is that in his conscience, he was not aware of it. Then the law shined in, it flicked a light on, and he said, Wow, my heart is messy. Verse 9. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Then he asks in verse 13, Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. The law is not what was causing him to die. He was already dead. The law is what caused him to see he was dead. The law wasn't the problem. He was the problem. The law simply showed it. But unfortunately, what man does is he does this he kills the messenger. Man always kills the messenger, doesn't he? That's the old, that's the old idiom. Don't kill the messenger. I'm just the messenger. Don't take it out on me. We always take it out on the messenger. The law is the messenger. The law is the one that tells me I'm, I've got a problem. And then people say, aha, the law is the problem. So we got to get rid of that law. We've got to get rid of the, the moral consciousness. Well, you can get rid of the moral consciousness all day but you can't get rid of the reality that it's there. God has designed this place. And whether, when it, I, I, I can buy a new furnace and it starts clinking and clanking. And I say, hmm, I'm just going to take this manual and throw it out. And I can throw out the manual and say, everything's fine. And I know everything's fine because I didn't read anything in the manual that says what the problem is. Well, that's because you threw the manual away. Yeah, I threw the manual away, but there's no manual. Therefore, that clinking must be okay. Things must be fine. Well, no, something's wrong. It's obvious something's wrong. I just threw away the book that tells me what is wrong. I threw away the book that's going to tell me what the problem is. And so Paul says here that sin, uh, that, that the law was not the problem. He says, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Paul speaks of the revelation of God's law. There's a subset of God's design principles which Paul did not know about until the law of God enlivened his conscience to them. He says, I had not known lust until the Bible said thou shalt not covet. But notice as well what he says. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The idea here is that Paul, when Paul did hear the righteous standard, His conscience immediately testified to the truth of it within him. It was activated by that light. Those little electrons began moving. He began emanating that light in the watch analogy. And then what did he feel? He says, I died. He felt his separation from God. He felt the shame and the guilt of the reality of his separation. And that's how the conscience works. When the light of God's truth shines upon it, Man's conscience is enlivened, is excited by that light. And this testifies to the spirit of man of the truths of the claim. Now, of course, when my watch is is, um, exposed to light, I look and I say, wow, there's no downside here. I can see my watch hands. And there's actually no downside to our conscience being enlivened either in the spiritual sense. But that's not how we feel about it, right? We feel that guilt and we say, I want that to go away. I don't like that guilt. I don't like that shame. I don't like that feeling. I don't want that feeling. How do I fix that feeling? And as I said, men spend their entire lives trying to fix that feeling. I sit across from people in the jail every week, addicts, drunkards. And the reason why they're addicts and drunkards is because they're trying to fix that feeling. We try to fix that feeling by buying stuff. We try to fix that feeling by eating too much. We try to fix that feeling by, by, by marking ourselves, by, 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 by distracting ourselves. We try to fix that feeling by falling into complete amusement. What does amusement mean, right? Amuse, not thinking. Amusement's a wonderful thing in its place. But if I live in the context of constant amusement, all I'm doing is I am avoiding life. I am stepping outside of life and I am living in a context of distraction because as long as I'm distracted, I don't have to take a look at myself in the mirror. And as long as I don't have to take a look at myself in the mirror, I don't have to feel what I know I'm going to feel when I actually do see myself. And so we don't like the conscience from our natural dead state. But just like the hands on the watch, our conscience is extremely valuable. It's a gift from God. Why? Well, it wouldn't be a gift from God if God simply gave us the conscience so that we could know how doomed we are. The reason it's a gift from God is because God solved the problem, right? Because the Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemning sin in the flesh, did for us when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sin, he took our sin so that anyone who will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved and his conscience will be freed. I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is how the conscience works. When the light of God's truth shines upon it, it testifies to the spirit of man of the truths of those claims Now, there's one more thing about the conscience that must be stated before we consider the particular manifestation of conscience that we see God working on in Genesis chapter 3. And that is that the conscience can be both calloused and defiled. And this is something that we need to warn ourselves about. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says this, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So here we find Paul speak to the idea of the conscience being seared with a hot iron. I, I trust you can see whenever you read First Timothy four verses one through three. Uh, I trust you can see how that is re- being reflected in our society today. Um, uh, that's, that's a different message for another day. But society is working its way quite quickly toward this end. But we, we focus in on this idea, verses two, uh, verse 2, about the conscience being seared with a hot iron. There are a couple of possible ideas to this, both of which seem to be valid biblical concepts as it relates to the conscience. The first idea is that the conscience becomes calloused. When skin is burned, said burns can kill the nerves and callous the skin. Calluses are grown on our skin as a natural defense against damage. Hard areas of skin are formed in order to protect the stuff underneath, right? And to protect the skin from cuts and blisters. A part of this process is that the nerves are no longer sensitive in that area, So, wherever you've grown calluses, most of us, that would be on our hands and on our feet, Uh, wherever you've grown those calluses, uh, not only is that skin tougher and thicker, but you're going to notice that your nerves are not as sensitive in those areas because there's a deadening of the nerves and a growing of skin above those nerves as a part of the process of protecting your body against the wear and the tear on those nerves. And that's what we call a callus, right, or callusing. And the same thing can happen to a conscience, where one persists in sin for so long, has gotten so many of the cuts and the scrapes and the bruises, and has not uh, gone to God for the healing balm by which uh, he forgives us and then makes our our hearts again supple or sensitive to the things of the Word of God, and if we persist in unconfessed sin for long enough, we ignore the pangs of the conscience for so long, uh, we actually our spirits develop a resistance to our own conscience, to where, whereas before we felt very deeply a certain uh, a, a certain offense, um, we, we stop feeling that. It's like, it's the same offense. It's the same context. We still know it's wrong. So we're not talking about a weaker brethren principle where someone's conscience is overactive and then over time they, 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 they uh, round out a little bit. We're talking about someone who's doing something. They know it's wrong, but they persist in that wrong and they stop feeling the pangs of their conscience because they are calloused. And that could be the idea of the, the conscience being seared with a hot iron. The other possible idea here is, is more akin to, um, to branding, the, the idea of, of branding, which is, is a little bit more along the lines of what the words in the text here are actually saying, the searing with a hot iron, that the conscience is hijacked by false notions of right and wrong, that, that uh, on your conscience there's actually a branding of, of something false, right? There's, there's a, a rewriting of sorts. It is trained to ignore the natural compulsions of God, and it is motivated by something else, some other perception of right and wrong. And as I said, this one might fit a little bit more nicely into the idea of the text, where just after speaking about searing the conscience, Paul warns about those that have a, a false morality, right? They judge morality on the basis of whether or not you get married, and they say getting married is wrong and staying single is right. And then they judge morality on the basis of eating of of meat. And they say that eating meat is wrong and not eating meat is right. Both of which, by the way, are being pushed in society heavily right now, isn't it? And they they elevate these things to their moral standard. And their conscience is actually working on them on these ideas. So their conscience is falsely accusing them of things which God has said are, are, are good and right what their conscience is saying is wrong because their conscience has been seared. It has been twisted. It has been perverted. They believe these things are wrong while naturally ignoring things that the word of God says are truly wrong. Either way, however, whichever one of those two ideas is intended to be reflected here in the text, we find regarding the conscience that it can be harmed in order that it would cease to function in its natural and designed way. And in, in an unbeliever's context, in the idea of, of one who is dead in their trespasses and sins, this is a net positive. They don't have to feel those pangs anymore. The pangs of, of, of their conscience, or, or it's warped so that the pangs of their conscience are only activated by the things which are absolutely within their control. And this is what a lot of ritualistic religious people do. They actually twist their conscience to where the things that they feel bad about are the things that are utterly within their control to change while ignoring the things that God has actually said are the problem. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees, right? That they are outside, their, their cups are clean or their are whited sepulchers, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. Whenever their conscience would activate, it would activate around the realities of their religious system, rather than around the realities of God's word so that they could ignore the fatherless and the widows without a pang of conscience but they could but if they did not tie their anise and their cumin they would have a real problem on their hands their their conscience had been twisted perverted so the first thing that we need to remember about our conscience is that our conscience can be uh, it can be twisted or it can be perverted it can be um, confused. The second, however, that we find, and this is where, where we read, or I, I quoted Titus chapter one, we'll go there now, is that the conscience can also be absolutely defiled. And we've already considered Titus 1.15, not just today, but, but several times, but the Bible says this, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them which are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and conscience is defiled. A person can so invest themselves in the lies that are around them that their moral compass becomes completely broken. And not only do they make arbitrary good, but they actually start to call evil good and good evil. We're warned of that in Isaiah famously. They see vice as virtue and they see virtue as vice. And this is the sign of a defiled conscience where they not only do wickedness, but they see their wickedness as virtue. And they see true virtue as wickedness. And when this happens, their conscience is defiled, their mind is defiled, they have lost all bearings on life as it truly exists. We've already considered some of Romans chapter one. The final verse, I don't have it up on the screen, but the final verse of Romans chapter one speaks of this kind of defilement. When a person having known, His foolish heart is darkened, professing himself to be wise, he becomes a fool, and he elevates the creature above the creator. The final verse of Romans 1 says this, Speaking of these people who, knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but take pleasure in them that do them. That is a defiled conscience. Not only do they do the things that they know are wicked, but they rejoice in it, they exult in it, they celebrate it. People will do incredible things to avoid guilt and shame, including take all of those shameful things and celebrate them as a means by which to avoid feeling that guilt and shame. On the day that Adam rebelled, by the way, coming, and we've seen this, right? Our society just had a one-month celebration to this newly coined month-long cultural holiday called Pride Month. It's everywhere now. It's the celebration of the God of self for a month, a celebration of sexual perversion. Now, this is taught in the Bible, but it's also evidenced by the fact that their celebrations all always devolve and take note of this, because this is going to come back to our text here in a minute. Their celebrations of their, their pride in the direction that their life is going, what does it always devolve into? Revealing of nakedness. I don't know if you've kept up with it. I hope you haven't, actually. But if you've kept up with what's happening this month, it always devolves into that. To that very base, fundamental shame that Adam and Eve experienced. Except they're not ashamed. Very strange. Very, actually, very biblical, right? It's exactly what we would expect if we believed the Bible. So on that day, Adam rebelled. His conscience was enlivened, and his first indication of this was the shame of his nakedness. Adam and Eve then forged a hasty covering of their nakedness in an attempt to cover their shame. And once God sought to establish the context within which Adam and Eve would live in their fallen state, the very first thing he did was clothe them, and so we come to this last little bit as it relates exactly, uh, directly to this. The concept as we describe it here at Legacy Baptist Church would fall under the standard of decency, which we differentiate here from modesty in a way. Immodesty is an effort to draw attention to yourself in action or in appearance. That's the idea of immodesty. As we see immodesty taught in the Bible, and I've said this many times, most of you know this, we actually never see immodesty in the Bible, especially as it relates to women, connected to too tight, too short. We see immodesty connected to too lavish and too wealthy. Plating of hair, the wearing of pearls, drawing attention to oneself. Now, that doesn't mean too tight, too short is not a part of it. But there is actually a distinction between the idea of immodesty, which is a much broader canopy as it relates to drawing undue attention to yourself, and indecency, which is the revealing of one's nakedness. Indecency is an action or an appearance which offends other principles of action and appearance, such as holiness, temperance, virtue. Those things are what we would call indecent things. Adam and Eve felt the shame of their nakedness because in their fallen state, nakedness rested outside of virtue, therefore it was indecent. So they covered themselves and consequently then God would cover them. Nakedness thus is the first and the fundamental reflection of the shame of man's sin. And the first and fundamental reflection of indecency is also nakedness, appearance which is outside of virtue. It's not the only way to be indecent. It's not the only subset of immodesty, but it is the first and fundamental way that one is indecent. And to cover one's nakedness is the first and uh, and fundamental way of acknowledging that there is a standard of decency and virtue by which we are called to live. And this is the case. And if this is the case, then what we would expect to see is that as a culture or a subculture, seeks more to reflect honor to the Lord's name and to live in virtue, one of the things that they will do, man and woman alike, will be to cover their nakedness. And history is borne out quite plainly. Likewise, we would expect that as a culture or a subculture rejects the biblical concept of virtue, one of the natural ways that we would expect to see this is in the revealing of their nakedness. Uh, The shamelessness of a culture. History has borne this out, hasn't it? That as Christianity took hold, first upon the Roman world, and then, of course, certainly after the Reformation, in various church subcultures and times and places throughout time, a unique zeal for the truths of God's word has always compelled people to live in a manner that reflects virtue. And a part of that is that they cover their nakedness. And conversely, one of the hallmarks of a pagan culture is a shamelessness of appearance as it relates to nakedness, which is why, as you see our culture, as I've said, going farther and farther away from God, you've seen a dramatic rise in the number of people who are comfortable exposing themselves to the world. Not even just a don't judge me, but a, "I am celebrated in this. And this is the first step along the path of denying the authority of the God who created them. Or perhaps it's a little bit farther down the path, probably not the first step. They deny the natural compulsion of their conscience to cover their shame. Now, in the church, this has become quite a debate, hasn't it? Even among those who would agree with the sentiment of shame in revealing of nakedness, the question is asked, what constitutes said revealing of nakedness? And good and well-meaning people can and do indeed disagree on this, and we understand that. We have these discussions in various forms within the scope of our church. Generally speaking... I don't do those from the pulpit. Why? Because preaching is not a very good, it's one of the least effective forums for these principles to be expressed because there cannot be clarification and questions. Now, on a Tuesday night or on a Sunday school, we talk through these things. And as we talk through these things, there can be a back and a forth. That's important. Why? Because when we set down broad brush, you must not, you must, things get muddied very quickly, confusing very quickly. Motivations can get distracted very quickly. And so that's for another forum. But what can be preached with absolute clarity is this principle. What can be compelled without ambiguity is a call that we would be loyal to this first foundational concept of virtue, that we as God's people would reflect a basic compulsion unto virtue by being devoted to the principle of covering ourselves of dressing both male and female in a manner which is becoming to the heart within us to walk in virtue and purity, to honor both our God-given conscience and to honor the consciences of those who are around us, to take the time and the effort into understanding what the Lord wants from his people regarding this issue and to align ourselves with it. And may that be the heart of each man and woman this morning. A heart filled with the desire to reflect honor to the Lord's name. I don't say this and I don't stay on this general level as an avoidance. But rather so that we can understand that the principle is what we are called to and This is what we know. This is what Jesus said even to the Pharisees when he told them that the the outside of their cup was clean, but the inside of their cup was filthy. That the outside of the tombs were whited and beautiful, but the inside were full of dead men's bones. There is a tendency in any issue like this to fix the outside without ever fixing the heart. But if we stay on the level of principle and then we allow the applications to be drawn out as it relates to our lives and circumstances, then what we do is we say, we claim loyalty to the principle and then we can align our hearts. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do today. As we think through this principle, first of the conscience and our relationship to our conscience, and then giving way to this principle of covering The desire is that our hearts would be filled with a compulsion to honor the Lord, to align ourselves with virtue in every form, to avoid the hallmarks of a conscience which is calloused or a conscience which is defiled, that in the midst of a people, that would be our society, which do not understand the connection between conscience and virtue, we might be a people who exemplify both, that we might be a testimony to those that are without, and also to those that are within of the virtue of the glory of God. Now, as I've said all of this, I mentioned already the the connection between conscience and the work that Jesus did on the cross. And the reason why we mention that is because what Paul says in his word is that when one comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, their conscience is freed. The idea there is not that you no longer feel the pangs of conscience when you're doing wrong. But much to the rather, it is that you know when you are dealing with the pangs of conscience because of some place where the light of the Word of God or the light of general revelation has shined and you recognize that you have fallen short, you don't have to rest in guilt and shame and fear over those things. And why? Because Christ has borne it all on the cross. So instead, you know, and this is what we're going to begin learning tonight in 1 John as our series begins, what you know is that you can flee to the cross, you can confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, which then brings you back to a state of fellowship with the Lord and you can walk in a, in a cleansed conscience so that you don't ever have to rest under the weight of guilt and of shame. These are not Christian principles. Guilt, shame, fear. Christ took these on the cross. To that end... If you're a believer here today and you're resting under guilt, shame, and fear, you're not supposed to be. Christ bore those on the cross. And if you're feeling that weight, the Bible gives us the solution. We come to the Lord. We repent. We realign. We confess. We acknowledge our sin. We leave it with him. We recognize that Christ took it on the cross and we walk away forgiven. And we can do it every time. We can do it moment by moment. We can do it at the moment of our sin. We can be brought back into fellowship so that we don't have to live in that place. Our conscience doing us a great service of showing us that there's something wrong. But thank God through Jesus Christ, the solution has been made available for us to get it fixed. Now the unbeliever, the solution is there too. You just haven't received it yet. But as I said already, the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life if you rest under the shame and the weight of that guilt maybe you don't anymore because you're you're under constant distraction you have you have distracted yourself away but the moment that you start to think about yourself the moment you start to look inward the moment you're no longer distracted the moment there's no longer something to do the moment there's no longer something to divert your time and and in our culture there's a lot of things that can divert your time but the moment you're not there you dread it because you know what's going to happen What's going to bubble up is immediately shame or depression or fear or guilt. These things are going to bubble up. And so you keep yourself distracted. You keep yourself busy. Or or maybe you've not been successful at that. And you are struggling. And you're really, really struggling. Because you can't anymore avoid, get past the guilt, the shame, the fear. And you're in it. And you're stuck in it. And you can't get out of it. And it's like you're in a pit. And there's no solution. Well, the solution came 2,000 years ago. God sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for you. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says that he bore all of our sin, bore our sin in his own body on the tree. 2 Corinthians 5 telling us, he hath made, that's the father, hath made him the son to be sin for us who knew no sin. For what reason? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And if you will accept that finished work, if you will believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, accept that that you, you are a sinner, that you are separated from God, that you cannot save yourself, but that Jesus Christ died on the cross to do for you what you could not do, that he died on the cross to bear that shame, to bear that guilt, to bear that fear, to bear that separation so that you could be saved. And if you will receive that for yourself, the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you've not done that today, as we think through this idea of the conscience, The conscience is a gift from God. But in our society today, it's being calloused. It's being completely defiled. But God gave it to you to draw you to himself with this promise that if you will come unto him, he will free you so that you don't have to run. You don't have to distract yourself. You can be, stand in your integrity, live your life in Christ